almost immediately there was changes in heart rate variability and resting heart rate to the point that several participants who were really into their data and, and really, really watching it messaged me and said, hey, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pregnant, even though my pregnancy test isn't positive yet. And they were. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this episode, I sat down with board-certified OBGYN and CrossFit trainer, Dr. Sean Rowan. We had a conversation about guiding training for women through pregnancy and postpartum, as well as a novel research study that he led looking at trends in heart rate variability and resting heart rate in exercising women before conception, during pregnancy, and in their postpartum period. I had a ton of fun getting to know Sean at this year's CrossFit Games, and I was really excited to have him on the podcast to share his perspective and some of the research that he's doing. So I hope you enjoy learning from him just as much as I have. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get to the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am really excited to be here with Dr. Sean Rowan, um, who is an OBGYN CrossFit doctor um, and has been doing some very interesting research as well in the area. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I thought we could just start with your background, um, even pre-CrossFit, maybe growing up, what kind of sports you were into or what your athletic background was. Yeah, so I come from a childhood where we played pretty much every sport. So other than baseball, I wasn't a big fan of baseball. I remember, I think it was in first grade, and I got hit by baseball, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm done with this." So that wasn't <laughs> my that wasn't my thing. But uh, I, I played some soccer. Played basketball was always my favorite sport. But being five foot eight, you know, it didn't work out <laughs> real well for me. Uh, football was probably the sport I was best at. Played a little Division three football, and uh, really enjoyed that. And then. Yeah, so growing up, played a little bit of everything and just really enjoyed sports. And then when I really got into football, really got into more strength training, and that translated later into into CrossFit. Okay. And I know it's it's always a tough transition, especially going from playing a sport in college to then after, I guess, maybe you went to, to med school after and finding that mm-hmm. new normal of how you're going to train or how exercise is going to be incorporated into your life. What was that time period like for you? I think heading into medical school was really interesting because um, I imagine yours was probably structured the same way where you had classes in the morning and then the afternoons were a lot more free time or mm-hmm. study when you want to. So we, we had a good group of us, about eight or 10 of us that almost every day did something. And that mm-hmm. I learned to rollerblade and to play street hockey, and, <laughs> uh, you know, racquetball, tennis. Every day we just tried to find something to, to keep us active. And I think that was a very important part of just getting through medical school, you know, just making sure that you were, were somewhat physically active to keep that stress down. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually, you know, when you head into third and fourth year and then definitely into residency, that's when it dropped away off for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and talking to other people that were very physically active for a long time, it seems like that's a time when they a lot of times kind of drop off too. So actually, I probably went a few years there without a whole lot of physical activity, nothing near what I do now. And that was a, and looking back, I think that was probably mentally 
a big impact on me. I think if I would have been able to be more physically active, the mental side of that would have been much, much easier. Yeah, absolutely. I think it sounds like you, you had a great environment there those first years of med school though. That sounds like a lot of fun, just having a good group to be able to do different things with and, and try yeah. different, different sports and things. But yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And I think a lot of people that I know too, just with third and fourth year of med school and then residency with your schedule, it being a lot harder to fit in those kind mm-hmm. of workouts. And, and I completely can relate to you on the the mental side of things. I think just not having that time to blow off steam and to, to be able to exercise, it affects you, I think, mentally, emotionally in a big way. Yeah. And looking back, you know, life still is obviously very busy, but I think it was a choice that I could have made differently. And, and I wish I would have. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I got into CrossFit and exercising when I did because I really needed it. But I do think that I hear this a lot from patients. Well, I would love to exercise, but I'm so busy with work and I have this mm-hmm. and I have that, you know, and I think that, yeah, I have a job, I have a wife, I have three kids, you know, I, I find time. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's really about setting priorities and I didn't set those priorities earlier, but that's something I've learned now. Mm-hmm. And I think that residents and medical students or any sort of professional person um, definitely can find that time if you just set it as a priority. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think for me, CrossFit also opened my eyes to see, you know, before I didn't really understand a lot of how, how exercise can always be modified, or you can do it in small doses, Mm -hmm. or you can find things to do. It doesn't have to be an hour long session in the gym, but you can find something to do. um, Even, even if it's mostly for that mental benefit, just to clear your head for a few minutes. And so for me, CrossFit was a big help. Um, in learning how to be more creative and fitting those workouts in, even when I felt like I didn't have time. And that's one thing I try to tell my patients too, is, you know, go for a walk for 15 minutes and mm-hmm. then do that for a while. Then you don't need to now walk for 30 minutes, walk faster for that 15 minutes <laughs> and then start go. running for 15 minutes, you know, and just kind of, you can still do a lot in that 15 to 20 minute time frame, as we see in CrossFit, you know, a lot of our workouts are seven, eight minutes and, and you're wiped out. And then oh, when you really? can get in that 30 minute workout, so. Yeah, I think trying to fit, we, we always have this idea that we need an hour mm-hmm. minimum to work out. And I don't think we do. Definitely not. Definitely some of my best, hardest workouts have been just a couple minutes long. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. think about Fran or Grace or some of those, mm-hmm. some of those tough ones. Which so, I'm sure your fan, your Fran time is much faster than my Fran time. So they <laughs> take a little to, bit longer to get Used there. to be, maybe. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> now. Um, so then how did you eventually, you know, you went through med school residency um how did you eventually find crossfit so i was just starting to get into exercising more on my own um we were expecting our second child my sister met uh, a man named jeff giosi and jeff had just bought crossfit morgantown and, and he was a very amazing athlete um you know the story and some others may as well jeff was probably going to be a master's athlete at the games this year and suddenly passed away in January. But when I first met Jeff, um, just getting into the gym with him a little bit, I'll never forget my first CrossFit workout. So my wife was, she was probably seven, eight weeks postpartum and she started training with Jeff and they were doing uh, one-on-one training and Jeff would sit there and hold the baby and Uh have her work through workouts. And I was post-call one day. She's like, come on with me today. And I was like, Okay. I just remember thinking, 
I used to be a good athlete. I'm going to go in here. Jeff's going to be so impressed. I just, yeah. And uh, <laughs> like I think it was the only time I ever, yeah, I think it was the only time I ever threw up after a CrossFit workout. Wow. Was, and I don't know, it just, I just pushed myself really hard that first time. And I was like, wow, this is hard. And yeah. then that became a challenge. It just became a challenge for me, you know, and it just, and then I just started loving it. Just getting into the gym and seeing the camaraderie and the community and then starting to do some local competitions, you know, it just became so much fun. And I, I just absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing some of the coaching. I coach three hours a week and that's just a whole other aspect. And I just think it's uh, just, it, it's really a highlight of my week. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I know you, and you came to a level one seminar back mm-hmm. when we were hosting the seminars for specifically for physicians. What was that experience like just learning more about the methodology behind CrossFit? I found it to be an amazing experience. And I've told several people in the gym who are just trying to fine tune some of their techniques and like, you know what, I think one of the best things to do, even if you never intend to coach is to go to your L1 because mm-hmm. you do learn so much that, yeah. that you don't think about. Um, so for me, it was, it was an amazing experience. It took me about two years from the time I got my L1 to actually start doing any coaching. So I forgot some of it, but mm-hmm. just kind of going through a lot of those movements and understanding the ideology behind it and even some of the nutrition talks and just kind of getting an idea of what this is all about mm-hmm. was really important. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, so I'd love to, to talk to you about what drew you to medicine. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds like you went, you went to med school right after college. What was it when, did you always know you want to be a doctor or what was it about medicine that, that drew you in? I always knew I wanted to do something in the health field. And I don't mm-hmm. know why, just from a young age, I was always drawn to it. I really thought I would either be a physical therapist or a chiropractor or when I did decide to get into medical school, I thought I would go down the sports medicine path. Mm-hmm. I was looking the other day at you know, how we feel all those things as a senior where you're going to be in 10 years oh, in yeah. high school. And I was just looking at that the other day. I found one and it said I had written on there I was going to be a chiropractor. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. But then I, I, I'm somewhere between there and starting undergrad, I switched and I knew I wanted to be a physical therapist. I like I was okay. set on that. And then just one day during um, freshman year, I was like, you know what? I'm just, let's just do this. And, and that's where I decided I'm just going to go to medical school. Okay. Yeah. Um, but still went, went to medical school with the intentions of maybe doing sports medicine or something yeah. related mm-hmm. to, um, what was it that, you know, that's obviously a big switch <laughs> over to OBGYN. So tell me about yeah. that. So I think part of it was just not understanding what all OBGYN incorporates. So the, mm-hmm. the surgery side really drew me in. And then the infertility side also was just mm-hmm. fascinating to me. And that's kind of where I specialize now is in the infertility and robotic surgeries. Um, you know, just also being able to help people get pregnant. I do a little bit of obstetrical care. So I see people through their pregnancy, deliver the baby. And then I have people I follow 10 years later and they're still showing me pictures of the babies they delivered. Oh. You know, and I think that a lot of times, in, especially in like orthopedic surgery unless they hurt their other knee you know or they, <laughs> right. you know another injury that's the only time you're really going to get to have that follow-up mm-hmm. so you know I just thought it really incorporated a, a lot of things that I love surgery mm-hmm. but also just getting to know people you know we go mm-hmm. into medicine to, to help people 
and that and that's that bond that you get with your patients, which I'm mm-hmm. sure in family medicine you have yeah. even more than I do, but it's, it's it's very cool. Yeah, it was definitely a big reason for me choosing family medicine. And I think I actually probably would have gone into OBGYN if I didn't go into family medicine. I think I think it's one of the most it's such a unique specialty where you can really be with women through a positive life experience. Whereas in so mm-hmm. many other fields of healthcare, it's because people are sick or because something, you know, negative happened. And just to be able to sort of help women in that process was so interesting to me. And I did, I loved my rotations. Yeah. Um, and I agree. I think for me, being able to develop those long-term relationships was really important. And I think when you do see bad things, you've built that relationship and to have people rely mm-hmm. on you. Mm-hmm. Now, in one way, it's like, man, this is, this is tough. I've gotten to know you and now I have to do, you know, help you through this yeah. hard time. But on the other hand, it's also very rewarding as a physician to, mm-hmm. to have that trust and to mm-hmm. know someone. And you can see it in the patient's eyes sometimes where they, they trust you. And then yeah. in the lowest part of their life, they're mm-hmm. just happy that you're there. And I think that's an important mm-hmm. thing too. Yeah, it's so, yeah, it's so... So unique, I think, especially in OBGYN, where you, yes, you get to be with women through this, like, uh, you know, amazing time in their life, but there's also some of the most devastating times, like you said, and just Mm -hmm. being able to develop those relationships and walk with them through that process is really, really amazing. Um, Well, I want to talk a little bit about exercise in pregnancy. And I know that, you know, this is a, a topic that you know, there's just not a lot of research on, there's not a lot of good information on, um, and a lot of misinformation and conflicting information out there. And so I'm Mm -hmm. curious from your perspective, being someone who was so into exercise and athletics all through his life, what was it like for you as you went through your training, learning about, you know, what we know about exercise and pregnancy and how to counsel women as they go through this? I think it was astounding that there's, it's just not taught. You know, mm-hmm. there's just not, it's not mentioned much. There's some bulletins from the American College of OBGYN, but they're not really focused on. I, I don't remember in residency really ever having a, or medical school, having a lecture on exercise in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and even outside of pregnancy, you know, it's, yeah. it's only been um, 19... 60, I had it written somewhere, I forget, 19, yeah, 1970 was the first time a woman ran the New York City Marathon. So before oh. that, women, women were banned prior to 1961 from running a marathon because they were told their uteruses would fall out if they went on a long run. I, so That's it's not crazy. That I did not ago. know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think it was not some, so 1970 was the first woman ran a New York City Marathon Somewhere around 67 or 68, a woman had snuck into the Boston Marathon dressed as a man. And <laughs> was in, yeah. So, you know, you're talking what, 50, 50 years ago. So yeah. really exercise in women in general is really a new concept, which is astounding. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, going through residency and, and not having the discussion of exercise, knowing these bulletins are out there that have recommendations. And it really started to open up my eyes when my wife went through mm-hmm. uh, you know, having our children and then my sister having her children and then, you know, several people having children all around the same time. And one of our friends came up to me one day and said, she was like eight or 10 weeks pregnant. And she said, you know, I saw my, 
midwife this morning and she told me I shouldn't deadlift more than 90 pounds. And I deadlifted like 180 this morning. Did I kill my baby? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no. And then you start asking around and nobody has any, people just have ideas. You know, mm-hmm. people told me very different numbers. And I, where did you come up with these? Like, oh, it just sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, there's nothing out there. And, and it's a shame. I mean, women have been having babies since the beginning of time. And mm-hmm. we've just never, never thought to look into this. And it's, it's not just exercise either. I mean, it's even the way drug metabolism studies, mm-hmm. you know, 1% of the studies ha- have some sort of pregnancy data on drug metabolism. So we're just guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the goals of my research was just to kind of open up the field a little bit and, and open up exactly what we're doing here is just discuss it. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what do we do? What is right? What is the right mm-hmm. things in pregnancy? Mm-hmm. And I think you hear, you know, like a lot of things in medicine, frankly, I think it's probably magnified with with, you know, women in pregnancy, but a lot of things in medicine, you hear this advice is just passed down from mm-hmm. people who have, you know, heard it from whoever taught them. And you look back and realize that there's not actually really good, strong data behind it. It's just kind of what we've always done. And I think, you know, especially when you think about um, exercise advice in pregnancy, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of advice about, you know, don't let your heart rate get above a certain Mm-hmm. rate or don't lift over 15 or 20 pounds. And I think for me going through med school, I did get the message of, you know, have women, you know, whatever they've been doing before, it's okay for them to continue, but don't, you know, don't start doing something new or something super intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you've tried to navigate that, um, how have you, you know, obviously there isn't a lot of data or information out there, but how do you approach counseling your patients about exercise as they go through pregnancy? One of the first things I ask them is what, what have they done in the past and what do they enjoy? So mm-hmm. I think when it comes to getting people to exercise and, and pregnancy or out of pregnancy, I could preach CrossFit and I say, I think it's, I think it's a great way to think, mm-hmm. but if you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it, you know? Right. So, so pick what you're going to do. Um, and then just kind of talking to them about what is safe, what, what they think they can incorporate into their life. Cause they also have, you know, they have so many social barriers too. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they're, it's their third child under the age of three, you know, mm-hmm. you can't expect them to, to do too much. Um, so what are, what are they able to do? What is their environment, especially in a rural state like West Virginia? Um, you know, it's, it's easy for us to say, which I think it's kind of to your point here. It's easy to say you need to exercise. Mm-hmm. and then walk out the door and move on to the next patient. But if they're 30 minutes from the closest gym, their husband's working off in an oil field or in a coal mine, and mm-hmm. they have three kids at home, what do you expect them to do? So I think- right. Or they've never exercised before, don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, and I think that's a very good point that we hear all the time is don't start a new exercise regimen in pregnancy, which I think, well, what better time is there? Mm-hmm. Right. We know that pregnancy is the time that women are most likely to stop smoking. To, to, to start looking to eat better, to really think about their lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's the best time to try to start to get someone to incorporate some exercise. But if they've never done it, what are they going to do? They're, they're probably mm-hmm. going to either go really hard and burn themselves out and be too sore to, to, to move in a couple mm-hmm. of days and then not start back up, or they're going to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're going to try to do movements that they shouldn't do. And 
So I think that there's a huge gap there that I don't really have a great answer for. And it's really going to take some community leaders and, and healthcare leaders getting together and saying, how do we provide this? And I think CrossFit was doing that some with some of their home exercises through the COVID time. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I was trying to direct some women towards those, you know, they were free workouts. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of them had like, you know, a water jug or something, you know, they had different ways to, to yeah. be moving. Yeah, that's so true. Um, what was it like for you as you started? You said you did your first workout. You actually got there because your wife had, had gone there seven or eight mm-hmm. weeks postpartum. I mean, what were your first thoughts seeing like, okay, she's postpartum, she's getting back into exercise and uh-huh. she's going to a CrossFit gym. Um, how did that start to change your understanding of, of you know, CrossFit or exercise during pregnancy or postpartum? Uh, she, had, she had started doing some things even while pregnant. So just watching that was interesting, you know, just watching her um, kind of adapt to how her body was changing, to how her center of gravity changed, and how, uh, you know, just all the body changes of, of edema and, and mm-hmm. things. So, you know, just watching that was really cool to watch. And then postpartum, watching how quickly she was able to get back into shape. I think we did a mud run like six weeks postpartum, you know. Yeah. So here she is, Aldona, a 5K <laughs> mud run. And I think it was important that she had stayed in shape throughout her pregnancy, that she was able to respond on very quickly and heal very quickly you know she, mm-hmm. she had a c-section and was up moving around um, the next day almost as if nothing had happened so I think it's mm-hmm. watching that really solidified for me that exercise isn't just safe but it's important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you counsel women now I know there's a lot of you know again a big question mark a lot of things that we don't know about doing crossfit through pregnancy and what you know Mm -hmm. certain movements that may or may not be advantageous if you you know talk to a woman who's going through who already does crossfit and then she's entering pregnancy what um advice would you give her what what points would you think are important for her to keep in mind as she's modifying yeah i think one of the most important things is to identify a coach in the gym that you're comfortable talking to and that you trust that that can help you through that. And not every gym is going to have that, but I think at least having those conversations with coaches or, or someone in the CrossFit world of what is, what can I do? What can I not do? Mm-hmm. And really so much of it is just listening to your body and using the, um, and actually the American college of OBGYN recommends not using heart rate as much as the org exertion scale. Mm-hmm. So kind of, how do you feel? And so much of it is going to be listening to your body and you're not going to be hitting PRs. You know, you need to just think about what your goal is. Your mm-hmm. goal is to move well, keep your body in a good shape so that you can deliver a child and take care of a child, but also just the, without getting too much into it, it's the physiology of it, the, the benefits of exercise and how this, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Dr. Clapp's book where he, he takes the different systems and breaks them down into what exercise does and then what pregnancy does and how the two really there's really more than an additive benefit so it's like heart rate for example or or the cardiovascular system you see an increase in blood volume with exercise Mm -hmm. you see a very large increase in blood volume with pregnancy you see changes to the heart structure Um, and then when you do both 
you see an ad, more of an additive effect. Uh, so okay. the, the benefits to what your body is already needing to do to adapt some sort of physical activity is making your body even more prepared for pregnancy, making you even a healthier pregnant woman, mm -hmm. giving you a better delivery and a healthier baby. That's amazing. And yeah, I'd love to just touch on that a little bit more about what we know about the benefits of exercise in pregnancy. So there's a lot we, we might not know about exactly, you know, how to implement it in the, in the most effective way, but we do know there's a ton of benefits both to mom and to baby. Yeah. And just back on to how do I counsel them as far as movement? I think you, you can try new movements, but don't try new movements that are going to be dangerous. Like you probably shouldn't handstand walk for the first time. You probably shouldn't try to do a muscle up for the first time. You yeah. know, you can definitely do pull-ups. So still work on that progression, right? Yeah. You can do, you can probably bear crawl. You can probably, you know, do burpees to a box, things mm -hmm. that are still protecting your belly. And just kind of think about that your center of gravity is going to change. And the more that that center of gravity changes, you, you have to be more cognizant of your balance. I use box jumps as an example. Mm -hmm. There's no harm in jumping on a box. There is harm in you tripping on the mm -hmm. box and hitting your belly, <laughs> which we've all done. We all have, you know, scars on our shins. Oh, yeah. Our Many times. Right? <laughs> so even outside of pregnancy, that's going to happen. So when, when you have those, those balance shifts and things, it's even more dangerous. So step on a box instead. You know, so you still doing those movements, just scaling them back a little bit. I really think thinking about what your goal is, mm -hmm. you know, so, so many of us get in there and we're competitive and we want to do, do the, the RX movements, but it's just not a time to do those RX movements. Definitely not new ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if you've it, done them before, maybe you can still. Yeah. I think it's just a change in that risk benefit calculation in your head of, mm -hmm. you know, okay, if I'm doing box jumps by myself and I, fall and skin my knees, you know, I'm willing to take that risk. I can have scabs on my knees for, you know, a few days and I'll be okay. Yeah. But if there's now suddenly a risk of me you know, harming my baby, then that's mm -hmm. a different risk benefit discussion. So yeah, yeah it's, it, I'm sure it changes things. And obviously I don't, you know, I haven't been through it. I don't know what that, you know, internal thought process is like, but I can just imagine it's different and different for every woman about what she feels mm -hmm. comfortable doing. Yeah. Um, and we know, oh, I did want to touch on too, any specific movement. So I think a lot of women are, especially in the, in the CrossFit world are really cognizant of diastasis and their pelvic floor and, you know, wanting to, um, position themselves to have the best recovery possible. Um, so mm -hmm. are, is there anything there that you advise women on in terms of, um, you know, certain movements, avoiding certain movements, or is it sort of an individual decision? I think it's more of an individual decision. I'll be honest, that's, that's not an area I've focused on too much. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, Lindsay with BirthFit, I know she's done a lot of work in that area. Mm -hmm. So she was someone that I would, you know, reach out to if, with questions yeah. like that. If yeah. people have specific questions, like relying on her. But definitely is a, is a concern for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. um, and one I think also still needs some further research done into it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I would love to talk about your research now. So, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about some of the challenges of, well, just the lack of research, but first, why, why do we have such a lack of research? What is, why is it so challenging to study women in pregnancy? And then can you talk a little bit about the opportunity that you had um, for your research? I think so much of it just comes down to liability and, mm -hmm. and IRBs 
just not wanting to uh, grant access to doing the research. Pregnant women have always been considered a protected group, same as prisoners and adolescents and children. So it's it's always going to be a little more difficult to do any sort of research with them. But it seems like pregnancy in particular has a heightened awareness among IRBs as far as uh, their desire to let you get a research project in. It's actually to the point that in 2018, the FDA finally spoke out and they put out a statement that this is a critical health need. We got to start researching pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So with that statement, I think that helped open up um, you know, the ability to do more research, I hope. Mm-hmm. But like uh, one of our residents and I was talking earlier, sometimes trying to protect a group is actually discriminating against them and, and doing the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You're not protecting them by not including them. You're actually, you know, decreasing your ability to care for, for women. Mm-hmm. So I, I think when, when we started talking about how do you research, how do you do any research in pregnancy? The first step was where do you start? And I, that's where we kind of developed our study was just a baseline. And so what we did is we used WHOOP, um, which WHOOP is a heart rate variability monitor and, and has many other stats that you get along mm-hmm. with it. But that's kind of the, the, main, uh, the main point the main data point. And what we did is we had women who were already exercising at least three to four times a week, and we didn't make it have to be CrossFit. It didn't have to be anything specific, although several of the women were going CrossFit. Some were runners. Some were actually had a bodybuilder. So we had different people doing different different things, as long as they were doing some form of exercise. And then they were trying to get pregnant. So Mm -hmm. that's where the study was a real challenge is we needed enough pre-pregnancy data mm-hmm. so that we could use them as their own controls, but we didn't want it so long that they didn't ever get pregnant, right. which unfortunately, and, and we know that not everybody's going to get pregnant. So we started with 36 participants. Uh, we've had 18 that uh, we have data on from um, preconception through pregnancy and postpartum. And mm-hmm. we've done some early analysis. I think the statistician is actually working on it this week, um, looking at the, the whole 18. When we got to 12, we did an initial analysis and then uh, going to hopefully look to publish it. And what we did is we are able now to define what is heart rate variability in pregnancy, what is resting heart rate in pregnancy. And we also have the sleep data and things that we're going to start to delve into more. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we have a baseline. And, and also, we actually got really cool results, you know? So what I thought was- <laughs> That's always a good thing. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just thought this would be more of a pilot study, just kind of getting a baseline. Of, where do you start? Because it's mm-hmm. going to be hard to go to an IRB and say, hey, we want to study pregnant women, make them exercise when you don't mm-hmm. know what's normal. Mm-hmm. So by using women as their own controls and doing the study in a way that pregnancy became the variable, not exercise. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we have this data that we can go back because now we have safety data, right? So- if we see that we start to implement exercise in women who weren't exercising, we see these crazy changes in heart rate variability and resting heart rate from what we expect, then we know that maybe we need to stop the study or re-examine things. So now we should be able to get much larger research projects going. But what we saw was uh, an almost immediate, the, the human body is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you go through medical school, you just realize even more and more how amazing you know, God made us. And that almost immediately there was changes in heart rate variability and resting heart rate 
to the point that several participants who were really into their data and, and really, really watching it messaged me and said, hey, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pregnant, even though my pregnancy test isn't positive yet. And they were because <laughs> they started to see those changes even before. That's and then amazing. we also saw the same. We think we're going to see the same. We're going to tease this out a little bit more, but right around the time of delivery, mm-hmm. the body starts to adjust very quickly, definitely postpartum. Mm-hmm. We see a huge change again. And, and some of the graphs, we're going to break it down a little bit more, look like even a day or two before delivery, you start to see mm-hmm. some significant changes. Wow. That's incredible to think about. So yeah, can you walk us through what those changes were? What, what did you see that happened yeah. to HRV and resting heart rate? Through? So, let, let me just explain real quick what HRV is. The so yeah. heart rate variability is looking at how your heart rate changes from beat to beat. So I think the simplest way to say it is if my heart is beating 60 beats a second or 60 beats a minute, I'm not having a heartbeat every second. It may be 0.8 seconds, maybe 1.4 seconds. You know, it's varying throughout that. And women who've been pregnant or been, or people who've been around women who are pregnant and we see those non-stress test monitors where we watch the baby's heartbeat over mm-hmm. 20 minutes or while you're in labor the entire time. As, a, as people outside the womb, our hearts are doing the same thing. We're having mm-hmm. those, those variabilities. So we've known for many years that how the fetal heart rate varies mm-hmm. it determines how healthy they are so if we see those 20 we want to see a 20 beat increase for at least 15 seconds in a, in a fetus we don't have those same exact parameters in adults but we know that if you are seeing that that we're in a healthier state mm-hmm. so when you look at the um autonomic nervous system we have the parasympathetic and the sympathetic system well the sympathetic is your fight or flight so we're trained our, our bodies evolutionarily are ready to, to fight or, or flee if we need to in time of emergency. And when you, see, when you are in that sort of state, which we sadly put ourselves into that state way more than we need to in this day and age, because we're not being chased by lions, but we create these stress environments for ourselves that are, we're almost always in this constant fight or flight state that we're minimizing that heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we're in a relaxed state, we're well hydrated, nutritionally we're good you know and everything is going well when we see an increase in that heart rate variability so by and it's different for everybody my heart rate variability last night may have been 60 year may have been 120 and that's fine that doesn't mean that i'm that much different than you just that that's your baseline so that's why it was important mine definitely wasn't 120 i'll give you that would be great (laughs) that'd be awesome if it was (laughs) I wish, I don't think I've ever seen 120, but if I do someday, I'll, I'll let you yeah. know how that feels. Yeah. Uh, so, so we were able to have them be their own. That's why we needed them to be their own controls because we couldn't just have a baseline number and say, how does it change? We need each person to see how they changed. Um, so almost immediately with conception, we saw a decrease in heart rate variability. And then we saw another statistically significant decrease in the second trimester it still went down a little bit at the beginning of the third trimester. So if you look at the third trimester as a whole, it looks like you had another statistically significant drop in heart rate variability during the third trimester. Mm-hmm. But what really happened was about 50 to 55 days before delivery, we saw this reversal in heart rate variability heading back into 
delivery back into the, the mm. increased heart rate variability stage. And almost the exact opposite happened with resting heart rate, which we've known. We know that resting heart rate goes up in pregnancy, but it's almost immediate with conception that we see the statistically significant change. Wow. And again, it goes up in the second trimester into the third and then starts to come back down with a pretty significant drop right around the time of delivery. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And you just think about, you know, being able to see that and then how women might be able to use that information thinking, like you mm-hmm. said, no, you know, knowing maybe that they are pregnant almost immediately if they're tracking these numbers. Um, yeah. And then, like you said, maybe even eventually being able to tease out what's happening right before delivery, maybe that will, will help, you know, them prepare or know, you know, when delivery is coming in some way. That's really incredible. Especially if we're able to show this in some way with women who've had preterm labor in the mm-hmm. past, you know, if we're mm-hmm. able to, have them. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be able to do that, but I think it would be really cool if we could. Yeah. And I'll be very, I'd be very interesting to see how, if we see significant changes in women with preeclampsia, you mm-hmm. know, because I can tell you, you, you can see a, pair, a, a woman one week and everything's going pretty well. They come back the next week. Now all of a sudden their blood pressure's up and they're swollen mm-hmm. and everything's just changed so quickly, mm-hmm. even in a week with preeclampsia. What if we could detect that even a little bit earlier? That would give us a chance to, to monitor them a little closer instead of bringing them back yeah. in a week, bringing them back in three or four days or getting steroids on board for the lung maturity. There's different things. Um, so there's just so many different things that we can look at because yeah. I will say that of the 18 that delivered, I believe 16 of them delivered at term and the other two were like 35, 36 weeks. So also, you know, late, late mm-hmm. preterm all healthy. Um, I think one person developed some high blood pressure. So mm-hmm. we truly have a pretty good, a good normal baseline. baseline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we can start to say what happens in the different disease states. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, that's incredible. What are some of the other things that you'd like to see, you know, directions that you'd like to see this research go or questions that you'd like to try to answer? Being someone that specializes in infertility, I'm very curious to see if we had women wearing whoops during their in vitro fertilization cycles. Mm. And do we see changes in these parameters based off of how they're how they respond to our medicines? So with in vitro fertilization, we're having women give themselves injections, usually eight to ten days at, at least, and then watching how their follicles grow and inside those follicles, which are little cysts on ultrasound inside those are maturing eggs. If they're not responding well, are there, are there any sort of parameters that we can pick up on before we see them back for the next ultrasound or see them back for the next lab test? Cause this is, mm-hmm. I forget the exact number. It's like 60 readings a second or something, right? With whoop. So yeah. we have all this data that we don't need to wait four days to see you back for an ultrasound. Are we able to, detect anything over the next few days to give us an idea of how you're responding. I, mm-hmm. I just think there's so many things that and it may show nothing. And mm-hmm. but I think those would be some things that we can look at. Yeah. I think we're just at such an interesting point right now where, like you said, we have the ability to collect this real time information and it's accessible to people. And so um, just what there's so much data and what we could potentially learn from that is huge. And I think, especially the application in pregnancy is, is really, really interesting. Yeah. Now my fear, <laughs> and as you <laughs> probably know, is the, as patients do have so much access to their information, you, you know, you draw labs and then 
before you have a chance to look at it, they've already sent you three messages saying, hey, I saw my white blood cell mm-hmm. count up, right? Mm-hmm. So are we, we want to be careful not to- To cause more anxiety or cause worry. more anxiety. Yeah, yeah exactly. We, yeah. we don't want women that all they do is sit there and watch the whoop data and say, oh man, my, my resting heart rate went up three beats today. I'm going to, you know. So I think we got to be a little bit careful in how we frame that. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of my fears of the research. Yeah. Um, but we're seeing that with everything right now. Right. Yeah, it is. It is real. And I think, like you said, how you frame it and for women knowing, knowing themselves, like, I think I've, I've been really impressed by, I have a lot of patients who are, you know, not even necessarily in pregnancy, but just say, you know, I don't necessarily want to track my HRV or track my sleep because I know myself and Mm -hmm. it's just going to cause me more anxiety. And so knowing yourself and saying like, okay, what's actually the best way for you to understand information about your body. And for a lot of people, that's not necessarily in real time. And, and I wonder if it, for some people, where I was talking about that fight or flight, mm-hmm. again, we, we don't, we're not being chased by animals, but we create these stress environments. And for mm-hmm. some people, are they, are they actually decreasing their HRV by watching their HRV? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like constantly right. like worried about what's my HRV going to be tomorrow? Right. As opposed to just relaxing. So right. uh, yeah, it's not, it's not for everybody. And, mm-hmm. and that, was, that was a challenge of the research too, is you, you had to make sure that you found people that were willing to wear this for a long time. Mm-hmm. you know, at least a year mm-hmm. in most cases. So. Yeah, it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. Um, well, so I want to start... Was... Oh, yeah, I was, I was going to say something. The other thing that we saw was postpartum. Mm, it was yeah. a very quick reversal. And to the point that about six weeks afterwards, we actually were seeing numbers that were improved over preconception. Mm. Um, so the data would at least possibly suggest fitness gains made during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So when you do talk to women about scaling through the pregnancy and things where they, maybe they were, they're on a great trajectory with their health and they were hitting all these PRs and they got pregnant. We're like, well, now it's all gone. Mm-hmm. It's not. You're able to mm-hmm. scale, continue to exercise appropriately throughout pregnancy mm-hmm. and you'll get back mm-hmm. to where you were pretty mm-hmm. quickly. That's, that's really amazing. I, I wonder what, the baseline pattern would be in women who are not exercising before, during, or after, if there's the same, you know, magnitude of change that, mm-hmm. that happens. Yeah. That's, that's one of the next avenues uh, we want to take is exactly that. Get women. But the tough part again is you need to find people that are interested in the data. Right. Because you have to wear your loop. You have to keep it on. You know, how to, you have to wear it at night. Uh, I had one, one, one participant who just didn't like the way it felt at night. So she took it off every night. And then mm-hmm. I, it's, uh, her data doesn't help me at all. Cause the way whoop is di- different, different products do it different ways. Mm-hmm. Whoop looks at your sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, they don't share the exact algorithm, but it's somewhere in that last, uh, sleep stage mm-hmm. or sleep cycle that they use the numbers. Then there's other companies that use your HRV and resting heart rate. 15 minutes after waking are different. So mm-hmm. um, for our data, we need, some, we need them to wear it during, during sleep. So if we could find women who aren't exercising, but would be interested in the data, I think that would be very, mm-hmm. very interesting. We would just have to go with them some other incentives. Yeah. So for our, that's for a good us, point. Incentive was they got the data. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. It's probably, if you're, if you're not interested in exercising, you're probably not going to be interested in your, well, yeah. I don't know. That's an assumption I'm making, but it seems like but it'd we, be less likely we can create in other ways. 
yeah, mm-hmm. like gas cards. You know, there's always those yeah. Target gift cards or things <laughs> that you can do. Because I, I think that would be very interesting. And I think that is the next step we really need to take is what do what do these parameters look like in women mm-hmm. who are not exercising and do they differ? Yeah. And then take some of half of those women and get them into an exercise regimen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how does, so someone that wasn't exercising, but now you see them for their new OB visit around seven or eight weeks and you enroll them in your study with some sort of exercise regimen. Mm-hmm. And do we see a difference there? Which I think would be very fascinating. That would be really to fascinating. See it, to see that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at, you know, all the different, the patterns with, with different complications through pregnancy and you start to get mm-hmm. this huge database of just what, you know, what the baselines are and then how can we, you know, positively impact that. That's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I want to start wrapping up, but before I get to the three questions I ask everyone at the end of the podcast, could you just leave us with sort of your top message that you would like women who are doing CrossFit that are thinking about getting pregnant or maybe are pregnant, what message would you like to leave them with? I think the number one thing is listen to your body, you know, set appropriate goals, think about what your goals are um, and, and kind of keep your eye on the prize, which in this situation is a healthy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then also that afterwards you can get back to where you were. Mm-hmm. Your body's going to be different, right? I mean, this idea that your body's going to be the same after delivery just isn't true for 99% of women. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be the same. And your sleep's going to be different. Everything's going to be different because now you have a child. But um, as far as your fitness goals, I think a lot of them can still be achieved pretty quickly afterwards. So don't don't stress over that. Listen to your body and, and keep your focus on what you're actually trying to achieve, which is a healthy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I love that. Love that. Well, three questions I ask everyone at the end. The one, the first is, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? three things that have a positive impact on my health. I think one thing that's very important to me is that I read my Bible every morning and every night. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that's just a great way to start and end the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that just kind of gets me in the right mind frame. I think number two would be really trying to pay attention to nutrition. I think mm-hmm. it's something that was not taught well in medical school and and I think it's a, it's an area that you could ask 10 nutritionists a question. You're probably going to get 10 different answers. Mm-hmm. So just kind of learning my own nutrition and, and what works for me. And, and I can tell you days that my nutrition is off is I'm very different. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third thing is just exercise. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if I go a couple of days without exercising, my wife is like, just stop what you're doing, <laughs> go work out. And then come back, you know, things so, will be better. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and it is, and it is it's tr- it's so true. And like we talked about it, even if it's sometimes it's, I have 10 minutes yeah. and I'm going to go, I'm going to go do something for 10 minutes. I'm going to row mm-hmm. really hard for 10 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. something to, to get moving. So I think, um, you know, my walk with God, nutrition and, and fitness are three things to get me through the days. I love that. And I just love the sort of the concept of giving, yourself making sure you're you have what you need you know mentally physically spiritually emotionally and, and kind of keeping that as a, as your baseline to be able to be at your best and like you know it's not always 
it's like this balance and maybe your wife notices, Hey, it's time to work out. Or maybe, you know, mm -hmm. your nutrition's off for a day and you're like, Hey, I don't really feel the same. Or, you know, I notice the same thing if my like morning time, um, you know, with prayer reading gets cut short or I oversleep or something like the day is just not the same. So I think, yeah. um, you know, those are all amazing. And I definitely noticed the same in my, in my life. Um, and I would say the other thing, just to make another quick point is that probably the biggest highlight of my day is that my wife and I work out together and mm -hmm. we really try to carve that time out. And, and for any couples out there that maybe your partner is not working out and that they're thinking about it and just that, uh -huh. that time together. And especially yeah. as parents where the kids know when we get home, you know, or they go to the gym with us mm -hmm. and they love that. And they've seen us in the gym and they just don't know anything different other than just mm -hmm. people exercise. Right. So I think that marriage wise is mm. one of the most important things that we do is just mm -hmm. have that time together i love that and just the example you set for your kids of this is important and this is yeah. a normal part of our daily life and them sort of growing up with that message i'm sure is going to serve them really well mm -hmm. um, what's one thing that you think would have an impact on your health but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on sleep yeah, <laughs> and, and just appropriate sleep, and, that, and that's not an occupational thing because a lot of people are like, oh, you're an OBGYN, and you probably never sleep. I have a pretty good life, really. You know, working in an academic center, I, I'm not on call like these uh, OBGYNs that are they don't have any help for 200 miles or they're on call 24 mm -hmm. seven. It's it's really just a matter of just getting my mind to to shut down and, and mm -hmm. telling myself to sleep appropriately. That that's by far the number one thing I need to work on. Love it. I can, I can relate. Um, what does a healthy life look like to you, Sean? What does a healthy life look like mm -hmm. to me? That's a tough one. I think that's where, so my, my sister talks about having different buckets in life and, and trying to keep them all full. So the, there's the spiritual bucket. I'm not going to be able to name them all off the top of my head, but there's the spiritual, <laughs> emotional, physical, financial uh, relationship and trying to keep all of those at, a, at an optimal point so mm -hmm. that no matter what hits you. And I think that she's a perfect example of this because, mm -hmm. you know, she's 34 years old as a one and, and three-year-old and her husband suddenly dies out of the blue, you know, mm -hmm. and, and people that saw her strength through that, you know, she's horribly sad, of course, mm -hmm. but the way that she was able to, to be strong and continue to do the things she did, she points back to that and says, you know, I, I, I maintained all of those different aspects of my life so that when one got devastated, mm -hmm. I didn't have to try to fill the other ones as well. And I think that's what a healthy life looks like is one where you have that, balance of all those different aspects mm -hmm. and I think so much of that plays into you know your occupation if, if your job just sucks and you're miserable every day it, it only takes one little hit in one of those little other areas you know then say that you then you throw your back out now you're just done right because now yeah. you, you you've you've hurt two of those buckets um so I think picking each of those spots and just trying to find and, and work's not going to be great every day. Marriage isn't going to be great every day. But trying to just keep a balance across those, mm -hmm. I think, will keep you in that healthy state. That's so beautiful. And I, you know, I appreciate you um, sharing so much too, just about Jeff, even him getting you into CrossFit and 
and about your sister's resilience. I told you before I listened to um, another podcast that you did, just talking about that experience and how, and your sister, and just how I was blown away by, by her resilience and how she's, Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like just had such grace through this whole situation. Um, And it, it does remind me a lot of, you know, the, when we talk about the sickness, wellness, fitness continuum, creating this buffer Mm -hmm. with our physical fitness, it's almost like we can do the same thing with each of those buckets, right? Like for Mm -hmm. whatever life's going to throw our way, whether it's a a physical challenge that comes up and we need to have some physical reserve or whether it's a mental, emotional, relational, financial challenge. And we, we have that buffer or that reserve whenever life throws something our way. Um, and how, you know, I think CrossFit is a great way for us to develop a lot of those, like, you know, mental character strength, um, physical strength, all that stuff, the relationships that we have in the gym, but but really paying attention to each of those buckets for us and knowing that they're not always going to be in perfect balance, but if we can do our best to, to be aware of each of them and keep them as full as possible, then, you know, ideally we do have that reserve when something happens. So that's, I think that might be my favorite answer to that question. <laughs> and I've asked it a lot, I think over 200 times. I have to give Sarah the credit. That's my, that's my sister. Give her the credit for that one. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And I'll link to you in the show notes to the, the other podcast that you did and some other links about, um, you know, Jeff's story. And so uh, people can learn more. Okay, great. Um, Thank you. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate all of our time together and just all the work that you're doing. Um, just one, just being who you are and, 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 you know, being in the gym with your family and your wife and um, coaching and all these things that, you know, you wouldn't think, you think someone's so, so busy, you know, as a academic OBGYN doing research, three kids, wife, but like still taking the time to coach and care about members at your gym is really amazing. And, um, and taking the, the initiative to do research like this in an area where we have such little information and just, it's exciting to think about, you know, now where we'll be five, 10 years from now, the information that we'll have and how we'll better be able to, to guide women through pregnancy. So thank you. Yeah. Excited for the future. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people. 